Hi, everyone. This is Dawn Richard, also known as The Awakening with Dawn. And this is the Wake Up to Real Love podcast, where we share stories of struggles and triumphs in love, sex, and relationships, along with expert advice to create more conscious connections. I am super excited and honored today to have our guest. Her name is Lucy Beresford, and she's a renowned sex and relationship broadcaster, a TED Talk speaker, the author of Happy Relationships at Home, Work, and Play, as well as three fiction books. She's also the founder of the award-winning Kindness Club, and she's an all-around good human being and advocate and role model for working on the relationship with yourself first in order to improve your relationship with the other. Welcome, Lucy Beresford. Oh, thank you so, so much. I'm so chuffed to be here. <laughs> introduction. Thank you. Like, You're welcome. Oh, is that me? I know sometimes it's hard to recognize yourself right (laughs) but it's very hard to puff yourself and I think that that taps into that whole thing of loving yourself that we we get very squeamish about saying how great we are or really championing our achievements or things that have gone well and when you hear someone else do it just as you did there there's a part of you thinking oh is, is that going to be too much? No, everybody has to be their own cheerleader, right? Definitely. <laughs> okay, so this is kind of out of left field. Um, my first question for you, I saw you're on Twitter. You talk about Love Island, you know, like you're this self-proclaimed Love Island at- addict. And I have never watched the show. I just saw like the notes about it. And it looks like dating on steroids. <laughs> So I wanted yeah. to know why you're so obsessed with it. Although haven't you just got an, um, an edition of it launching in America? I thought they have just launched a Love Island America. So you've got no excuse. for. I, I know I have, I have no excuse. I just have never, I don't know. I don't watch a lot of TV or, you know, so this is just so funny. So tell me all about it. So um, I love the fact that you thought that would be a left field question, but I basically spent the last 72 hours talking and writing non-stop about Love Island because the final was on Monday night ah. um, and the person that I the couple that I voted for won so that's all brilliant um, <laughs> but it has come in for a lot of criticism a lot of criticism because it's thought that it's very shallow everybody um, the contestants that live in the villa which is in Mallorca all wander around all day in their um, bikinis and their swimwear so visually, it's a very particular looking show. Uh-huh. The assumption is that it's a very shallow show and that it's all about people having sex and that the only way you can win it is maybe to do something very outrageous. Uh-huh. But actually what you find is that these couples, these people that are in the villa taking part in the show, they're just like you and me. They, they, they want to find love, but more importantly, they want to work out how to do relationships. And Mm. the problem is none of us is born knowing how to do relationships. Exactly. We all muddle through. We all go wrong. We all suffer jealousies or rejections, setbacks. And this is happening on our television screens in this program. So it's it's really powerful television. And I think what, what has been happening is that people are beginning to realize that it's a great way to learn about how to do relationships it's a probably even more importantly, it's a great way to learn how not to do relationships. You know, right. say, issues around consent, issues around slut shaming, issues around fat shaming, um, issues around uh, loneliness and not being part of the gang. Um, all of these things come up in the show. And then as a result, 
they then get talked about the following day, either in the office or in the newspapers, on television shows, and also in various sitting rooms and kitchens up and down the country as parents and children, particularly adolescents, talk to each other about the most important things in life, which is our relationships and, and our intimate relationships. So I just think it is such gripping television because of course you get sucked into various storylines and various characters and you think, oh, I really want that person to win. And it has to be said that the person, there were two people who won, obviously they were in a couple. You can only win the show if you're in a couple. Uh -huh. um, and the female in the couple was actually not a particularly nice character in the beginning. She's quite young and she was quite mouthy and um, quite bitchy actually. And when there were a couple of other girls together, they ganged up on some other people in the villa, which wasn't very attractive to look at. But actually over the eight weeks of the show, we saw her really grow up. Mm. Uh, it was astonishing to watch. I mean, people rather annoyingly talk about a journey. Oh, I've been on a journey, you know, on Dancing on Ice or Dancing with the Stars or whatever. It's <laughs> the best who's had the journey that kind of wins. But this girl truly had been on a journey from being kind of slightly bitchy late adolescent to being actually a woman. Mm. And she found a guy, whether this person was introduced into the villa deliberately for her, we, we don't know, but they clicked and he made her laugh. And it was just a lovely story. So I watch it because it shows us about relationships, how to do them, but also how not to do them. And I think that information is very useful. I, how, I mean, when you were talking about like body shaming and slut shaming, I, I often wonder like, why do people do that to other people? You know, how do they, how do they think of themselves when they're doing that? So what, what, well, do, you, what um, do you think about that? There was some quite interesting research that came out of uh, an American university, I think last year, about slut-shaming. And it showed that the people who do slut-shaming are often other women. So we would like to think that actually it's sort of old men who've maybe passed their time and they're trying to take women down a peg or two. But actually, some of the research shows that it can, the hostility can actually be coming from other women. And I think... In, particularly in terms of slut shaming. Fat shaming, I'll get onto in a minute, but having women who are comfortable with their own uh, desires, with their own sexual appetite, uh -huh. who are very relaxed in their own body, who enjoy sex, those women can be quite threatening in communities. They aren't threatening, but other people will think that they are. They might think of them as man-eaters, or they might think of them as sort of, you know, really aggressive, perhaps having masculine traits which they're using to dominate. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. It's just that there are women out there, probably like you and me, who love sex, quite like talking about it, very comfortable about those topics. But there are other women and some men who find that very threatening, that it seems to go to the very heart of who we are as human creatures, right. to be sexually active. And the idea that you might love it and dare I say it, perhaps even as a result, be quite good at it, right. like doing it. I mean, I, I wouldn't profess to be brilliant at it at all, but I'm very comfortable talking about it. And therefore people assume, oh my God, she must be awesome. And that is threatening. So I think there's a lot of envy. There's a lot of jealousy. There's a lot of 
trying to put people in their place. Well, I think it's also a, a lot of insecurity on the people that do it. Exactly. Right? They, they feel that these other people have got their life sorted. So let's take them down a peg or two. Let's ridicule them. Uh, what happened in Love Island was that we had one character who came in who was female, who was very confident about her sexuality and what she wanted. And the boys were sort of joking about it, but you could tell they were slightly thrown by this. Surely it should have been them that was talking about sex all the time. And as a result, they began to talk down at her. They began to ridicule her. As you say, because they themselves felt insecure, suddenly they were dethroned from the, the more virile members of the villa. Uh, so I think that is what's going on. It's, it's a very upsetting thing. Fat shaming is quite complicated. Um, I don't know what it's like in the States, but here in the UK, we talk about having an obesity crisis. So a lot of the fat shaming that's happening at the moment is coming under the umbrella of health concern. Right. That somehow we're trying to encourage everyone to lose weight because then hopefully that will mean they won't suffer certain diseases or that they won't die ahead of time. But that presupposes that your weight is somehow in completely linked to your health. Right. And some people can actually be clinically overweight and also quite healthy. So I'm thinking now of rugby players, for example, who are notoriously, you know, at the very large end of the body mass index. And the BMI is the very crude tool that clinicians often use to try to work out whether you're overweight, but it doesn't allow for muscle mass. So you've got a whole sort of profession trying to make certain people who look a certain way appear as unhealthy, whereas in fact they might very well be healthy. So it's a very complicated picture. Again, I think it's about trying to fit people into very narrow stereotypes of what you look like, how you talk about sex, you know, good girls don't have sex. That message right. is, is very powerful and it suppresses, it, it um, crushes a lot of people's spirit. Well, and I think it, I think it comes down to, you know, we're not accepting other people as they are. And I still think it comes back to your own insecurities that, you know, if you were okay with yourself, you would just let people be who they are. Yes. Right. Yeah. Live and let live completely. Whereas I think if you're trying to hurt someone else to criticize someone else, that's always going to be telling us more about what you're worried in right. yourself and what right. you perhaps are. So for example, fat people who fat shame are often criticizing people who are overweight or have, have bigger bodies for lacking willpower. Right. Well, there's nothing to suggest that that's actually what's really going on. Not least because some people there's, you know, you can have weight gain for a, a wide variety of reasons, not least getting older. You know, we, we all are going to put on a bit more weight if we're not careful just because of the hormonal fluctuations and changes that happen later in life to men and to women. That hasn't got anything to do with willpower whatsoever. Right. That shaming that's coming at you will always be saying more about the shamer than the person that they're attacking. Right. I, I'm thinking about slut shaming and why are there such double standards for men and women? 
historically, like, you know, millions of years ago, you needed a man to go out there and impregnate multiple women in order to make sure that multiple children survived at a time when not every child survived either birth or infancy. So that's the kind of anthropological context, whereas a woman needed to certainly stay around for nine months, not having very much sex because they're, you know, too busy taking care of the kids. And then then the following nine months, kind of taking care of the child and trying to get some sleep. (laughs) So you create a narrative in society, which is that men are men by being virile and spilling their seed far and wide. And women aren't. Women have sex once and then they have a baby and then they have sex again. And they, it, So the narrative is very different. And I think it's just been the case for a millennia or more, uh, clearly a millennia or more, that <laughs> men, men are allowed to have sex a lot and women are not really meant to have sex a lot. Right. So if he is interested in that, then something, then she's either not very feminine or there's something wrong with her. Again, let's put her back in the box because actually secretly we would love to be having lots of sex and we've, we've abstained. So why should you have all the fun? There's a real kind of, if you can't, if I can't have it, then I don't see why you should kind of mentality going on. And it's astonishing that that narrative has taken so long to be rewritten, I guess. I mean, there were a lot of women having lots of sex historically, but we never really got to hear about it. And as you say, there was a lot of slut shaming. But probably in the 60s, there was a, a shift with the advent of the contraceptive pill, right, right. which detached sex and procreation. Right. And suddenly sex becomes something that is definitely, you could just have it for pleasure. In fact, you could have it for the rest of your life for pleasure because there's no expectation any longer that a woman has to have children and that moment I think marks the turning point but that's only been 40 years in a lifespan of a species that's you know however many millions of years old so that I think that's why it's taking so long to rewrite that script and do and do you think because women are more empowered with their own sexuality and because we're living longer, that that completely changes the dynamics within a couple and just in society in general on how women and men approach uh, sex as they're aging. Definitely, uh, not least because there are now lots of ways in which you can manage, for example, the menopause. But bearing in mind, actually, that even the menopause is a relatively late addition to human existence simply because most of us didn't live beyond the age of about 40 or 45 until about 150 to 200 years ago. So we didn't even have to think about what the menopause was because everyone was dead. Then we start living longer and the hormone fluctuations change. So then there's a new phenomenon, which is this, well, men and women, because there's the menopause as well as the menopause. And what do we do with these slightly older people in our community? What is their function? Are they just there as an extra pair of child rearing hands? Or are they allowed to have a life of their own, which includes uh, sex? And 
I'd say on my radio show, half the calls I got, or half the calls I, half the people that get in touch with me are around either the men or the women saying one or the other has gone off sex due to an age thing. Um, so again, that's either the women undergoing hormonal changes and maybe not wanting to do anything about it and therefore their libido crashes and the sex life falls off a cliff or also the men um, because aging affects us psychologically and we can definitely champion champion getting older affect our identity and how attractive we feel so I think what we're seeing now is is that amazing shift whereby people are saying I don't want to stop having sex at 48 or I don't want to stop dating at 63. Um, you know, there are horizons are so much broader, uh, which is, which is all to the good, but there's lots of extra stuff you need to think about. So in this country, we've got an incredible phenomenon, which is the spike in sexually transmitted infections in the over fifties. So at the moment, that's where I, I see a lot of people, you know, through divorce or through bereavement, they're getting back onto the dating scene, but the dating scene has changed in the last 30 years. Right. And, and they just don't really know everything they need to know. And then lo and behold, there's this huge increase in the number of people suffering from sexually transmitted infections because the, the, the education process isn't cutting through to that generation i was going to say they didn't they didn't get the condom talk they didn't get the condom talk uh they they certainly don't know about you know how to keep themselves safe they don't even know that that's a thing because all of the education seems to be going in the teens and 20s which is great great but we need to remember that there are people having what for them are quite new experiences in their fifties and sixties, seventies. Right. Do you think, do you think people, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking about the whole AIDS, you know, HIV and AIDS that, that brought sexually transmitted diseases, you know, really in the forefront of all of us. And so I, I just don't understand how people are still sort of unaware or they, or maybe they just think, you know, Oh, it couldn't happen to me because I'm clean and, you know, my partner's clean well, or, you know, you have. Is that the, I think that for, for a generation that was reaching sexual maturity in the sort of late seventies and eighties, sorry, seventies and eighties, when the AIDS epidemic was first publicized, uh -huh. there was so much about that, but but subsequent to that, it's kind of gone quiet, particularly within the heterosexual community, to the extent that people just don't, you know, they can't imagine that syphilis still exists. They don't imagine that treatment-resistant gonorrhea exists. They just remember AIDS and they think, oh, okay, yeah, but that was a long time ago. And you hear about the treatment um, and you just imagine, actually, you know, it, it, it's all under control, so I don't have to think about these other things. Uh, and and that's that's the worry is that we're not really targeting the information at the right people. And I, and plus, I think that when you get into new relationships, and this is something that I want to talk about with you, uh, when when you get into new relationships, people are really hesitant about speaking openly. 
And I know, you know, that you have said, this is what we should be talking about, right? I mean, it's so funny because sex occupies our minds and our media so much. And yet it's the thing that we hide the most about, in my opinion. Yes. And also sex is a very intimate act. Right. So we're prepared to, I mean, I, Presumably, I can speak graphically on this. Yes, uh, yes, please. Yeah, yeah. So you, <laughs> you're going to stick your penis in a vagina, but you don't want to talk about it. Right. And that I find extraordinary, that somehow it's more embarrassing to talk about something than to actually do the thing and have all of the bodily fluids and the smells and you know the, the various things that you might encounter when you actually right. go to bed with someone. You're fully prepared to sign up to that but you're not prepared to have a very um, companionable, meaningful conversation with someone you fancy, maybe when you're on a walk or when you're in a bar, because it's just too embarrassing. The (laughs) irony of that is just... (laughs) I I have teenagers. I have a 16-year-old daughter, an 18-year-old son, and a 20-year-old son. And my daughter just had a birthday party two weeks ago. And for some reason... Mom, the therapist, ended up having this conversation with 10, 16-year-olds. And I said to them, if you can't talk about sex with who you want to have sex with, then you probably shouldn't be having it. That's right. Yes. That, because then you'd know that it's probably just lust. You know, that, that amazing. And there are those moments where you meet someone and the chemistry is so apparent. Right. That actually the two of you do just want to go off and rip your clothes off. I mean, it is extraordinary that that happens uh-huh. because it feels such a primitive experience. And yet, that, as you say, that's probably the moment where you need to step back and think, maybe we should have a conversation. <laughs> um, of all the conversations I'm going to have in my day, this is probably the one I need to be having right now. But you don't want to spoil the moment. You don't want to, you know, kill the vibe. Uh, I can quite understand, but I think that's, very good advice whatever your age not just 16 but maybe even you know 46 or 66 yeah any <clears throat> any age because you <clears throat> excuse me i think that well it, i mean it depends on what your motives are it depends sort of you know where your heart is and that and that for me i think is the tricky part between men and women and i don't know maybe i'm making a judgment or an assumption about this because men i think can sort of disconnect their emotions from their penis you know like their penis has the mind of its own and yes. and women it's much more difficult to separate those yes i mean um we need to think about for example the way in which you know a man can often have an erection first thing in the morning right absolutely nothing to do with who's in the bed Right. Uh, but there's usually nobody in the bed. It's just a thing that happens. But then if there is somebody in the bed with them, then they may very well have sex with that person. And that's fine. But it's it's not that there's been this wonderful sort of wooing or arousal or any pre desire, pre- yeah. Or even desire, exactly. It's a, a much more biological, physiological phenomena. Um and try explaining that to people who are, you know, going away to college and maybe sharing a bed with somebody for the first time, they'll think, oh my goodness, I've obviously aroused this person. How fantastic. Well, um, no, no, work like that. No, but I think get me to get up and go to the bathroom. (laughs) Yes. Which is why again, you know, porn, 
and listen, there, there is definitely female-friendly porn. Um, there's definitely female-friendly porn that's being made by women for women, which is great. But traditionally, porn was very was a very blunt instrument, whereas women tend to get much more turned on by by the story, the sort of prosaic um, build-up to right. the sexual encounter. So if you see a sex scene in a conventional movie, it can actually be quite erotic for a woman because there's been a whole story that's led to that scene. Whereas the man is thinking, oh, can we just get on? You know, I've, I <laughs> Can we just do back. it? I just want to get back to the tank battle. Exactly. Uh, and you're thinking, tank battle? I'm in the wrong film. Um, but uh, yes, women love foreplay. And that's because, again, it takes a little bit of time to be aroused and to get everything going. And again, uh, that's more, more than a little bit of time. <laughs> that's oh, yeah, exactly. And it's that I'm telling my kids too, like women, it takes 20 to 45 minutes to be fully aroused till your body yes. is actually open to receiving, right? Exactly. It's not that we're just a bit bored and we need time to kind of switch our heads around. But actually, as you say, it's the whole arousal, the blood flowing to the genitalia. It, it takes time. It's not just like a quick thing that happens, which again is why, you know, a dinner date, candlelight, bit of music, maybe dancing at a club or watching a scene in a movie. It's all part of the arousal process. Right. Um, so yeah, as you say, very, to know those differences, particularly in a heteronormative relationship, knowing those differences is really useful. Well, and I, and I think too, men, I don't know, you, you, you can say yes or no, but men um, sort of think of foreplay as like, you know, five minutes, I'll do this and this or, you know, whatever. And then she should be ready. And I, and I don't think that they're, to me, it's like men should be wanting to explore a woman's body. And that's how he can arouse her the most and have the most pleasant experience, both for her and for him. Yes, I think that's right. I think because it's funny, though, because a man can very rarely ejaculate immediately. You wouldn't just say to him, you know, do it Back now. Fingers. Right. There still needs to be a little bit of manipulation on his part of the penis before you can get to that climax. So I always sort of say, you know, just imagine that, but just a little bit longer. A similar process physiologically is happening with the woman. It's a, you know, it's a similar, you're, you're trying to do a similar thing to the female genitalia in terms of getting the blood pumping there and getting it erect almost. So if you can, if you can accept that it's needing to happen for a man, then it definitely needs to happen for a woman as well. But as you say, part of the sexual encounter is this lovely, exploration even if you've been with someone for 20 30 40 years there's still lovely things that you can find out and there's this gorgeous poem by uh i was going to say john dunn but i've just now hesitated because i can't quite remember but it's a metaphysical poet from sort of the um early 16th century and he's talking about his lover's body as being like this globe this you know this new america that i'm going to explore because actually america may be somebody was talking about discovering it or something and it was like, oh, that's a really good analogy. I think I'll um, but it's just this lovely idea that this, that your whole body is the terrain on which someone is going to 
find out about you a bit more, whether it's your earlobe, your little toe, that mole you've got on the inside of your thigh. It's all there for the exploring. It's not just about this one thing and having the orgasm. And I think, you know, particularly when we are talking about, as we did earlier, about people who um, perhaps as they get older, maybe their libido declines or they're worried that the sex isn't going so well at any stage. If you can take that pressure off and make it not just about the orgasm, right. not just about the ejaculation, right. you can actually really rev up your sex life because you've discovered all these other things that you've maybe been missing. You've been speeding so quickly down the motorway towards the orgasm or the ejaculation. You've missed all these lovely little turnings, little detours, taking you off to these lovely, delightful things in his body, her body, which means you just get to know this other person so much better. Well, and I, and I think because we change all the time, I mean, even, even, even say, uh, you know, the way that somebody touches you one, one minute, like five minutes later, it stops feeling good, you know? So then you have to change like pressure or touch or speed or, you know, direction or whatever. And so, and I think, and I think what happens when you're with somebody is you lose your imagination, you lose your, um, ability, like, like you have these preconceived notions or expectations of how it's going to be, as opposed to coming at it as a curious explorer. And even, you know, because I know you love to tell stories, it's like, what story do I want to create in this moment? Yes. And also, as you say, that idea of um, how for a man, for example, it, it's a fairly standard procedure in order to masturbate. But for a woman, it is about variety, speed, difference in pressure. And what can often happen, particularly in couples that have been together a while, is that they get into that routine, they get into that rhythm of what works. And they almost become afraid to try something different, to shake it up, um, and to vary the speed, the pace, the setting, all those different things that can change it. Whereas, as you say, a couple of strokes around the breast or a couple of you know licks here it's like okay yeah I've, I've got the message there now we need to shake it up a bit and, what again, color is the ceiling I'm getting yeah. bored <laughs> but what but how do you have those conversations with someone is always the really interesting thing because particularly if you have been with someone for quite some time there is a worry I think that people have oh well maybe they'll it's so funny how we we always imagine we know what our partner is thinking, but it's like, oh no, they'll be, they'll be cross because they think I'm criticizing them or they'll right. think that I've got bored. Well, it's not that you're bored necessarily, but you just want to shake things up. You want to do something differently and you want to find out what works for them as well. And it's a two way street. Yeah, well, it's, it's like, you know, it's say your, what's your favorite food, Lucy? Oh, how extraordinary. So much. Let's say avocado. Okay, so can you imagine having avocado morning, noon, night, morning, noon, night, morning, noon, night, morning, noon, night, day after day after, you know, that's boring. That's yeah. boring. <laughs> yes. No, you're absolutely right. Funnily enough, um, I used to live in Peru. Peru. Uh, I, I know I was going to ask you about that oh, too. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite countries. And, you know, as a little girl, as a girl coming from quite cold uh, England, you know, we didn't have avocado, but we were having avocado every day for breakfast. But after about a month, I was bored of avocado for breakfast. And I never right. thought I'd say that. So 
So that's exactly right. You, you have to be able to vary it as you do in most things in your relationship. It, otherwise, the relationship is going to get monotonous. You're going to get stuck in a groove. And sadly, that's what opens your relationship up to infidelity, to attack, to yeah. attack from the outside. That actually, which is not to condone infidelity as you know that you know that's the subject of my ted talk you know how do you survive it but the it is worth paying attention to whether you're leaving your relationship vulnerable by just getting stuck in a routine and stuck in the old ways because people do get bored and and if you're and if you're bored i think it's well you're being you're look at yourself you're being boring you know, what can you do to bring more life into this relationship and this communication and this exchange? But then you've got a situation where if somebody is feeling boring and then they, you know, they feel boring in their marriage, but they don't feel boring in the office. And, you know, there are lots of people in the office who tell them they're amazing, or maybe they go on a business trip or they go on a girl's holiday and then they meet someone who doesn't treat them as if they're boring. Right. It's understandable why that then be, head, turns their head. It's it's human nature to be wanted. It's human nature to be to be loved and adored. It's one of the things we long for. If you're in a marriage where those things aren't communicated, you're not saying that enough to your partner. They're going to start to think, well, I'm I'm not even really seen in this relationship. Um, so again, I'm, I'm stressing, I'm, this isn't to condone right. error being unfaithful, but it's to try to explain how, how some relationships can go off course. And therefore, these are the things you could do to get it back, to right. kind of infidelity proof your relationship. Yeah, that you can say, I'm bored. You know, what can we do about this? What do, what do we need to do together to bring more life between us, you know, outside of the bedroom? and inside of the bedroom, because I believe that sex starts outside of the bedroom, like you were talking about the story, the foreplay, you know, that it's, it's a process. It's not just, you know, under the sheets and five minutes and you're done. Yeah, exactly. And, and to have those conversations is quite a brave thing to do Yeah, is to say, I, you know, I think there's something going wrong. The problem is lots of relationships have lots of telltale signs that things are going wrong before people sit down and have the conversation things aren't going wrong and the biggest clue is obviously lots of rows so people who get in touch with me i don't know maybe get in touch with you they're saying you know we just row the whole time right. we either row about money or we row about the kids or we row about in-laws or we row about ridiculous things but it's just a sign that something else needs to be talked about but instead, they're having a row about the toothpaste tube or they're having a row about who did and didn't take the bins out. They're having the rows, but they're not having the rows about what the they really stuff. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so how what kind of response have you gotten from your TED talk? Because I would imagine I mean, there are people who are so adamant about, you know, they had an affair. I'm done. I would never accept that. And you go, well, you don't know until you're in that situation. So I'm just wondering what kind of feedback you've gotten from your TED Talk. Well, it's been pretty astonishing, actually, um, because, first of all, so many people have watched it from around the world. I think it's like 
230,000 already, which is great. Um, there's definitely some pushback from people who haven't been in that situation saying, absolutely, one strike and you're out. Right. Then you get the people who say, it did happen to me. And I said, one strike and you're out. And that's fine. If that is what works for you, absolutely. Um, who knows? Maybe you were hoping to get out of the relationship anyway. Maybe you could see it wasn't working. Or maybe you just thought, you know what? Yeah, it's, it's all such a catastrophe. There's, there's no way we can pull it back. And then I've had other people who've got in touch because, you know, underneath the, the talk, lots of people kind of post comments or they email me and they, they say, oh, you know, the person was unfaithful to me and I did stay with them and that, now they've done it again, which of course is mm -hmm. where I get to later in the talk about what you do if that person kind of does it to you again. Nobody wants, I'm not, I'm not advocating that everybody should be hurt twice. I don't really want people to be hurt at all, but I think you've got to give it a shot. And I had quite an interesting email from somebody, a, a very young girl in America, sort of late teens. And in a way she was saying to me, do I have permission to give my partner another chance? And I thought that was quite powerful. And I do wonder whether the narrative has swung too much the other way that says one strike and you're out. You hurt me once. I'm not even going to, to go there because we've talked so much and rightly so about female empowerment and, or rather, you know, just empowering yourself. So whether you're male or female, that actually if someone treats you disrespectfully, you just walk away. The problem is relationships are very complex and the, the etiology of infidelity will also probably be quite complex. And if there's any chance to save the good in something, wouldn't you really want to at least give it a go, to know, to know fully that at least you gave it your best shot? And I think that's because you can always learn from infidelity. You can always learn what it was that your relationship really needed. What, what right. was the person missing? What was, what was missing maybe in your life? And it, isn't it a good idea to just at least see whether you could have a great relationship if you brought that stuff back or if you introduced that new stuff? I just think that's got to be worth a shot. Well, and I, and I think, too, that betrayal comes in different forms, not just sexually. You know, the sexual mm -hmm. betrayal is most, um, uh, I don't know, maybe most potent, you know, how dare you betray me in that way. But there are other sorts of betrayal that happen over time, um, like neglect, like disrespect, like, um, you know, uh, sort of abandoning your partner emotionally or, you know, so. Exactly. I think there's quite a lot of, um, I, I wanted to, in my talk to give a flavor of the fact that it wasn't just about uh, a sexual betrayal, but that it right. could be some kind of other betrayal, which is in a way, you know, just your secret life. You, you betray your partner by having a secret life. And at that moment, you open up betrayal to include gambling addictions, yes, porn addictions, porn addiction, or even, and, and this is where you were talking about neglect and abandonment, I think, even if you sort of have got somebody who doesn't really stand up for you, and I'm thinking yes, now, doesn't have your back, doesn't have your back, for example, 
when it comes to dealing with their family. So maybe their family is very critical or hostile and somehow your partner always takes their side and doesn't take your side. That kind of scenario walks into my consulting room quite a bit. And, or, or, or people who, who feel that the, the third person in their relationship is, the, is their partner's mobile phone or their partner's career. Right. You know, everything, everything has to come second to you answering that email at nine o'clock at night or you nipping back into the office on a Saturday morning to do that thing that nobody else can be bothered to do. You know, those, those sorts of things. If you're not paying attention to your relationship, your relationship will be the vulnerable. Worst yes, and it will be vulnerable to attack. <clears throat> Yeah, so I I believe that people can uh, recover. I mean, when I was doing my therapy, I was dealing with three couples at a time uh, who, who all have experienced betrayal in their relationship. And I had said to them, it really comes down to a choice, you know, because because when we're in a relationship, people will hurt you intentionally or unintentionally. And, you know, one of the biggest lessons that my parents taught me was forgiveness and it's not excusing your be I'm not excusing your behavior, but when you come to me with remorse and, you know, of course the, the betrayer has to rebuild trust uh, in the relationship, but there's, there's, there's so much to be said about love, compassion, understanding for, you know, what the other person was experiencing mm -hmm. and for the hurt, you know, that the person caused, you know, so if there's this two way communication and this want to rebuild and repair your relationship and forgiveness and saying, Hey, let's recreate something new and, and build something so that we're not, that we don't fall vulnerable again to, to this sort of situation, you know, that, that you can choose that and recreate a better kind of marriage. Yes, because I think one of the things that I tried to do in that TED talk was to explain why the idea of just saying, right, one strike and you're out, doesn't actually help you in the long term. Because what that does is it means it leaves you open to only ever evolving so far because right. you're always cutting your relationships off. Right. At the first sign of trouble. Right. Now, obviously, if someone betrays you by cheating on you for two years, that's a very different proposition. And it's a very different form of trouble to someone who is, um, you know, maybe just lazy and never helps you take the bins out. Or um, I, I can't think of another example. But I, I do sometimes when somebody gets in touch and says, well, I think you're wrong because I would never want to be able to stay with me. I'd never be able to want to stay with someone who had disrespected me. Right. I realize in that moment, first of all, it sounds to me like they haven't had to go through this, in which case it's a theoretical thing. But secondly, it's so you, you never learn the skills of how to manage a bump in the road or even a right. massive mountain in the road. And, and just to go back to Love Island, because um, I'm always trying to shoehorn Love Island into any conversation. Um, <laughs> this is an eight-week show where lots of people chop and change. And there is an argument to say that the way that dating works nowadays with, uh, you know, swiping right and 
okay, I went on two dates with you, that wasn't good, I'll move on to the next person. We're losing the skills to actually navigate a relationship of any duration at all. Right. And the joke about the show was, gosh, some of these people can't even manage a relationship for eight weeks. That's how bad it's getting. <laughs> it's not true, you know. Yeah. They were with these people 24-7, so, you know, that's eight weeks multiplied by about five. Um, but we have to learn how to cope with someone really upsetting us, someone annoying us, us disappointing someone else. It's not going to be perfect the whole time. It's and never, never going to be perfect, period. No, it will just never be. There will definitely be moments where you pinch yourself and just think, this is just amazing. Right. There will be moments. If you don't have moments like that, then I think you are definitely in the wrong relationship. Right. Otherwise, you may as What's well be the point? or something. <laughs> um, but when Jay-Z and Beyonce, which, or Jay-Z in particular, was talking about this idea that, you know, he hurt Beyonce and therefore he wanted to leave because he couldn't bear the idea that he'd hurt her. Well, the bigger thing is to work on that and develop a better relationship. And I do worry, which is a very long way of answering your question, I worry that if we are too quick to drop the people that hurt us in a very dramatic, never darken my door again way, right. you're basically gonna have no mates by the time you're 55. Or you'll never, you'll be alone by the time you're 70 because you'll have got rid of everybody else in your life. Well, I, I think that's part of um, facing yourself. You know, if you're not willing to face your partner, you're not willing to face yourself. And I know that this is a super important part of your message, which is why I resonated with you so much. It's like, it starts with you, right? It's, it yeah. starts, it starts with you. So what are you not dealing with in your own life? What are you not dealing with your, emo, your own emotions? <clears throat> um, and, and we we're, we're, we're close to time up, but, um, if you can just sort of sum up that facing yourself and, and self-love that you're a big proponent of, um, can you talk about that? Because I think that's part of my final question for every guest is what's your definition of real love? And I think that all ties together. Definitely. Well, my definition of real love is um, real acceptance. And that, of course, does start with yourself because we're too quick to criticize what we look like or how we behave, beat ourselves up on a regular basis for the things we've done or the things we haven't done. And it's very hard sometimes to show ourselves great love great right. take ourselves seriously in that way and if you can't take yourself seriously then you can't really complain when other people don't either so it is about nourishing yourself but also setting good boundaries um so that if people are you know do things that we don't like then you call them out on it you you say clearly you know this is this doesn't work for me i I feel sad when you do this or say that. Um, but ultimately, we are going to probably spend more time alone than with someone. And the way that the world works, we may very well be on our own for a long time. So let's get to know who we are right. and like who we are. And actually, you're right. I mean, that that's something I've been not only trying to write about a lot, it's the first chapter in Happy Relationships, but it's something I 
try to do on a daily basis for myself. And it's hard, you know, because lots of real life gets in the way. Mm-hmm. But I make time to meditate twice a day and I make time to, you know, write down in my gratitude journal the things that I'm really grateful for. And I kind of write my top three things at the end of every day. I, I'm paying attention to what I eat and I'm paying attention to the people that I surround myself with. And I've got to the age where actually that's meant that I've had to elegantly let go of certain friendships and then sometimes friends have let go of me and you have to kind of deal with that. Right. But ultimately it is about loving yourself first, not being selfish in a, uh, what do I, I don't, I don't mean that actually. Sometimes it is about being selfish, but the criticism coming back at you will always be, Oh, you're just being selfish. Well, sometimes that is important. It's like those, um, in-flight messages where you have to, you know, you must put your oxygen mask on <laughs> right. first, otherwise you can't help someone else. If you aren't in tip-top condition, looking after yourself and having compassion for yourself, you're not going to have the energy or the juice to do that for other people. Yes. So, so important. Such a powerful message. Lucy, you're an amazing guest. I have like a million other questions I still want to ask you. We'll do it at another time. Oh, I hope <laughs> I look so. To coming back if you'll have me. So I would love to have you whenever you have time, whenever you would like, because I love having these conversations. I know. It's great, isn't it? Aren't we lucky that we live in a an era where these sorts of where this tech can facilitate that? Yes, it's really, really beautiful. So how do people get in touch with you? I want our listeners to find out what's the best way to reach you, what's the best way to find your books, your kindness club, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, brilliant. Well, the website is www.lucyberesford.co.uk. There's a whole section about the kindness club, and we can talk about that another time. Uh, You can buy my books there. I can send them all over the world. Uh, I can do, obviously, Skype and Zoom calls if people have book groups. And I'm also on Instagram, Beresford.l. And I'm on Twitter, Lucy Beresford. Okay. And I will be sure and put all of that in my notes under the podcast. Um, Okay. So my little outro. (laughs) Um, If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and tell all of your friends uh, because Lucy is an amazing, amazing guest. Thank you so much for being here with me. And um, for, for my purposes, if you would like support in finding more connection, expansion, fulfillment, and authenticity in your own relationships, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at The Awakening with Dawn. And you can feel free to send me a message And I'd be happy to help you find and create more real love in your life. And as Lucy and I were talking about, I think this should be the mantra for everyone. The most important relationship you'll ever have is the one you have with yourself so that you can be the kind of partner you want to have. So thank you so much again, Lucy. You are a great guest and you are welcome to come anytime. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. All right. Thanks, listeners. We'll see you next time. Take care. Bye.